0: All right. Good morning, Grace Point Church. It's so good to see all of you here. Glad that uh, we we could make it today. Before the big storm today that's up and coming, I think we're gonna get two inches of snow, something like that. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. You probably hear this from me every winter. I love it when it snows. I love the snow. Bring bring the snow. Keep away the rain. Come on, you can all say that, right? All right, I'd rather have snow than rain. You can play in the snow. You can throw it at people. I mean, you know, you can't throw rain at people. I mean, try. It's, it's just not the same. It's not the same. Uh, well, I'm so glad to be here with all of you. And, and uh, I know there's a lot going on in all of our lives, but it's always good to come here and, and to be together. Um, excited to have you here. I know that today is also a day when um, many of the college students are coming back. And so I'm not sure if it's this service or next. We we'll see. We should see a number of uh, inter-varsity students, college students coming and, and checking out Grace Point. So if that happens to be you, you're here. We just want to welcome you and um, say so we'd love to have you get involved and just come and be a part of, of our group. Um, listen if you 've got your Bibles, we are in uh, the book of romans we 're in chapter eleven. We are near the end of the book of le- of, uh, in the end of chapter eleven today. Sorry, the end of our series really um, in, in Romans eleven although um, as i 've been studying i 've thought I really want to take some time and camp out in this section and come back and, and just some, spend some time on some things um, but if you, you haven 't been here, this is a, a great day to be here, I think. Um, I try to tell this to everybody just about every time. Uh, Our our whole purpose here is just to try to inspire you to follow Jesus. It's not about how great um, our praise band is, although I love them and I think that they're, they're fabulous. And it's not about how great the people are. It's not about how great the speaker is, the preaching is, or the facilities or anything, or the children's ministry. I think that it's wonderful. Our whole purpose here is just to inspire you to follow Jesus. That's what we're here for. That's what we're about. and so that's where we give God we give God all the glory with that. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey, I hope that you would consider taking whatever that next step is, whether it's meeting and talking with somebody about who Jesus Christ is, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, or maybe you've been doing that for a little while and then you've never followed the Lord in, in baptism, or maybe you're not really a part of it, you're kind of on the outskirts of the church, but you want to get involved in the community. We would invite you to take some of those next steps even to the point of you've never really sat and studied the Bible before. We'd love to have you get involved in a small group Bible study and get together and just talk with people, a small group community. That's really one of the things that God has intended for us to do. So so wherever you are in your spiritual journey, I hope that today helps you take whatever that next step is. And, and I want to start by asking you a question. A very simple question. You can see it on the screen. But what is it that comes to your mind... When you think about God, and, and I don't want you to answer right now, because some of you could probably pontificate for a long time, and it's my job to speak, not yours today, so uh, I want you to think about this. This is really the question I want to last for the whole message, I want it to last through the rest of today. I want it to last within the next week. I want you to think about this question. You should be thinking about this question your entire life. You know, when, when Paul finished teaching from... Uh, well, I guess he wasn't teaching this. He wrote this. He wrote this down. He sent it to, to Rome. He's, he's writing to the Christians in Rome and, and he's writing this down and, and, and he didn't have chapter breaks and verses. He's writing a letter to these people We divided it into chapters, but by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, what we have seen so far, what we've read so far, this is really, I would just call it a theological masterpiece. It's got so much in it. It's all about the righteousness of God. And Paul has been writing about who God is and what God's plan is. Um, just recently, if you've been here the last few weeks, he's been talking a lot about God's plan for the Jews for Israel, that God is not He is He has not abandoned them and that one day He's going to bring them to the place where you have a, a remnant of, of believing Jews that they're following Jesus, but then there's going to be a group of Jews that their hearts have been hardened, they were hardened, and God is going to unharden them. And all of Israel is now going to come and follow him. And it's because of them and what happened with them and them rejecting the gospel that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, came to the Gentiles. The good news has been coming to the Gentiles for, for about 2,000 years. And Paul's been writing about what is God doing and why is he doing what he's doing. You know, earlier on in the book, he really just kind of lays it flat. He says, There is nobody righteous. There's nobody who's right with God. Nobody's gonna earn that. You're not gonna grow up and say, I'm following the rules and therefore that makes me good. We're good. No, no one is righteous, not even one. And then he says, listen, if you must know, and you must know, Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. He is that. He is the revealed righteousness of God. And what He did is He bore the punishment. He bore the shame that you and I, all the nasty stuff that we've done, and He bore all that on the cross. And God judged Him. Jesus Christ took the judgment. He is the One who the justice came upon. The punishment came on Him. And at the same time, He is the One who now justifies the sinner who believes in Him. He's the one that can declare a person righteous. Because when people come and they believe on Him, He says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And so He's the one who does this. And and we read through Romans, and in chapter 9, He told us some pretty difficult things. He, He talked about how He hardens some people, that God actually does harden people. We read about how He hardened people like Pharaoh. And it's... It's not that people don't kind of go their own way, but sometimes people go their own way and God says, fine, I'm going to let you continue. And they get hardened in that way. And boy, what a scary thing. But we read things about how He has called people. He has foreknown them. He has predestined people for life in Christ. And man, some, that makes us a little uncomfortable. Predestination, election, all of that, and that's what he's been talking about. And at the same time as he's been talking about this, he comes along and he says, listen, salvation comes to people who put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they believe in their heart that the Lord has raised Jesus from the dead, and they confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus. Those are the people who now become right with God. They understand that Jesus rose from the dead. And see, what God does is He takes these people and He works through them. It says beautiful are the the feet of the people who proclaim the good news. People go places and they share what's true about Jesus Christ. And they take the Gospel with them wherever they go. And in all of this, one of the things that he said is sort of this common theme. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're Greek. It doesn't matter what people group you are from. Everyone's condemned because of their disobedience. Everyone. And yet, God has shown mercy to everyone because anyone can believe. Anyone can turn in faith to Jesus Christ. He has always provided a way through Jesus Christ. Now, this is I'm just giving you a little summary of what Paul's been talking about, but what do you say at the end of something like this or, or or sort of how do you how do you stop at this point and what do you do? Do you try to summarize let me summarize everything that I said. Maybe you know some of you try to do that in your writings and give a summary do you, do you just, uh, or, or do you just like, well, that's just too much. Do you immediately just go on to the next subject? Alright, let's talk about the next thing. Now, you, you can't do that. What do you do when you finish talking about something as grand as this? What you do is you stop. You stop and you think about God. You have to stop and reflect. You have to stop... And allow yourself to experience awe. You have to be awe struck. Um, as we come to this passage, we're going to look at today. I, I just uh, I need to confess a little something and get it off my chest because, um, well, there there are places that I read in the Word of God, and just to be honest, frankly. Um, I um, I wrongly expect that as I'm reading it that he probably that God won't show up that he's not going to really speak to me that I'll read it and it's just like you know it's a cursory glance I kind of expect certain places yeah yeah oh, I'm probably not going to get a whole lot out of this um, and that just kind of shows a little bit of the shallowness of my heart right. Um, what we're about to read is something that I've read in the past. Uh, I, I would barely give it just kind of a cursory glance. I'd read through it, take maybe 30 seconds, whatever it is, glance over it quickly, and I've never stopped. I've never, I've never taken time to just pull back and meditate and say, what is he really saying? Um, and I guess it's because it just didn't seem all that important to me. And, and man, was I wrong. And maybe you 've done the same thing, maybe you 've done the same thing, and if you 've opened you know a Bible before and you 've read some things and you just kind of glance and you just kind of go and maybe maybe you 've done that as well, and if so, um, I, will, I just welcome you to join me today in repenting and, and let 's just take a look at this because after detailing the righteousness of God, as Paul has been writing to this group of Christians in Rome, Paul stops. To sing a doxology. And some of you are like, a doxology? Yeah, like th- there's a famous song that we call the doxology. It's not that. You know, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him, all creatures here below, praise Him above be heavenly host, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. That's doxology but that's not really exactly what he does he stops he gives time to praise he gives time to meditate time to think about god and he uses some words that are just very big and rich so let me read this with you and let's talk about this today romans 11:33 he says oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments And how fathomless or untraceable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who is first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. I think it was A.W. Tozer who once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Really. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Because apparently that could be the most important thing about you. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he he often argued that, that thinking about God is, is the thing that improves your mind. It, 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 it improves your mind. It expands your thoughts. He, he argued, he said this, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work... The doings and the existence of the great God whom He calls His Father. But the problem is, is how many of us regularly think about God? I mean, even in church services. Even in church services, I know. People come to church, they come habitually. And, and maybe you've come before. You've come before. And you've sat and you've not thought about God because you're thinking about something else, or you're tired, or whatever. And yet that happens. Um, You know, back in 1993, um, James Boyce he wrote that that no people ever rise higher than their idea of God. No people ever rise higher than their idea of God. And but he also thought not one in a hundred churchgoers today actively thinks about God or stands in awe of Him. And he said, as a part of the average worship service. Now, I don't know how he knew that, if he really knew that, or if this is just an estimation, or maybe he's thinking the average worship service across the world and that maybe only one out of a hundred really are in awe of God and stands in awe and thinks about Him when they come to worship God. I don't, I don't know if that's true, but I do think that, you know this. I think part of the problem is that we don't realize how different God is from ourselves. Psalm 50, verse 21 says, You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set my accusations before your eyes. Isaiah 55. He, he says, "My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways." He says, "My ways are so much higher than yours. My thoughts are so much higher than yours, and you can't you can't understand. You you don't get it. And yet we're constantly what we're constantly doing is bringing God down to our level." Martin Luther, he was writing to Erasmus. Erasmus had a totally different understanding of who God was. And Martin Luther says, your thoughts of God are too human. I think that that's probably true of many of us. I think we do this too. So, so Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how fathomless are His ways or how untraceable are His ways. And I'm reading this and commentators are divided and for, so for you people who like to study, you know, know a little bit about Greek or whatever, you could read it a couple of ways. The first way you can read it is this. You could say um, that there is a depth of riches of two things, of, of knowledge and wisdom. It's the depth of riches of knowledge and wisdom. But, uh, but when I read the Greek, I see that there are three, uh, three genitives, in, I think, in a row. And, and really, I think what he's trying to say is he's saying it's, there is a depth of riches, of wisdom, and of knowledge. Some people want to say, oh, the riches are the wisdom and all. I don't, I don't think so. The depth of God's riches and His wisdom and His knowledge. It's beyond the ability to even explore. And the the translation here basically says fathomless. And I picked this because I just thought, what a cool word. Fathomless, right? Unfathomable. I love that word. That same word is used in Ephesians 3.8 to say that the spiritual blessings that come through knowing Jesus Christ, it's too much to be measured. It's infinite. It's beyond your ability to imagine. You can't even imagine how much. And the New Testament speaks so often about um, the immeasurable riches of God. And, and sometimes it will attach these riches to certain ideas like the idea of, of mercy. The riches of mercy. Or it's grace. The riches of His grace. Grace or the riches of His kindness toward us. And it says the riches of Christ are unsearchable. And yet, great passage, Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all our needs according to His riches in glory. Or according to His glorious riches. What does He have? He has it all. He has more than what we can imagine. We can't even understand His riches. and Unless we misunderstand what riches mean, because most of the time, see, we try to make God too human. And I think that maybe we think of riches like... I think of riches. You know, if I had riches right now, I would have a Tesla. That's the kind of riches I would have. I would have a new kitchen floor and countertop. And carpet. And let's keep going. How about a roof and a driveway? Yes, riches. No, no, not riches. Let me tell you about riches in a way that you wouldn't expect. Henry Ironside, he's an old uh, pastor, long, long gone, he's with the Lord now, but he was preaching in Fresno, California. And this was earlier on in his ministry. And, and basically what happened is he ended up being broke. He had nothing, no, nothing, nothing and he set his suitcase aside in a place over by the post office where they're at Watch, watch it for him. He's supposed to be there for some like meetings where he was teaching and he had no place to stay. He had to check out of the hotel. He had no money. He didn't have any money for food. And he goes in Fresno, he sits under a tree and he's just sitting there and he's like, "God, why don't why don't you supply? I've got needs." Don't you understand? I I have nothing. I have no place to stay. I have nothing to eat. All I have is the clothes on my back and the suitcase that I set over there. And he's praying and he's he's complaining. If he has all the riches, his glorious riches in Christ, why doesn't he provide for all of my needs? Why isn't he doing that? And and at the time, he's sitting there and he's praying and he's thinking and it kind of brings him to mind of, of maybe some areas in his life where he had been fairly careless. Areas of his mind where he was not really walking with God. It was just part of the thing he did. And he had a bit of an awakening. And he began to just sit and repent in his heart of, of the things that were going on. And, and in a little while, a little while later, actually God did provide. Some old friends show up and they actually provided for him a place to stay provided housing. And then he was able to go to the meetings and after the meetings, the, the congregation, they took a love offering and, and he received some funds for that that enabled him to pay for transportation to go back home, to get on the train to go back home. But as he left Fresno, uh, he went to the, uh, to the post office, picked up his, his uh, suitcase there and he found a letter from his father that he wasn't expecting. And his father had written to him God spoke to me through Philippians 4.19 today. He's promised to supply all of our need. He said, someday I may see that I need a starving. And if He does, He will supply that. And Ironside saw that God was putting him through a time of discipline in order to draw him closer to Himself. God isn't just... Rich with riches as we think. He is rich with whatever supply we need. We have needs. I think my needs are a new kitchen countertop. God thinks my needs are a deeper walk with Him. Who's right? Me, of course, right? No, no, no. He's rich in supplying what we need. See, this is how we need to begin to look at this. You know, it talks about his riches, talks about his knowledge, talks about his wisdom. I'm thinking about Proverbs nine ten, where it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want wisdom, the place that you start is you you go to God and you learn to fear Him, you learn to awe Him. In Proverbs one seven, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge. We think we know things. But we don't know them the way that God knows things. Let me just read a little bit about how God knows things. Um, Arthur Pink, he once wrote this God is omniscient. Omniscient means he knows everything. He knows everything, everything possible, everything actual. All events, all creatures, all of the past, all of the present, and the future. He's perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes His notice. Nothing can be hidden from Him. Nothing is forgotten by Him. He never errs. He never changes. He never overlooks anything. God has never learned from anyone. He, he's always possessed His knowledge from eternity. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised. He's never amazed, thinking about some people who I've talked with at times, or even my, my parents went to, you know somebody went to church with, with my parents once, and as he walked through the doors, he's like, "He may not want to stay too so close to me because lightning might come down from heaven, as though God might be surprised that this person would dare to enter a church. He's not surprised. He knows. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything that has ever happened to you. He knows everything you've chosen not to do. He knows every thought that you've ever thought. And with all this knowledge, He's a righteous judge. In in all of His justice, he, He is righteous. It says His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable. Two, two words. Two words that kind of almost describe very, very similar things. The, the first thing to say that His judgments are unsearchable. Um, to say God's judgment are unsearchable, what it means is it's talking about the decrees of God, the things He has decided and that He's put into place, that they are really too great to comprehend. So, let me try to explain them. Some of you got that. His plans... His judgments and his plans are so right and so perfect that you can't, get a higher, you can't get to a higher vantage point to look down on them to be able to evaluate them and say, oh, those are so good. You, you, can't, you can't get to a higher vantage point than what they are. In other words, there's not a standard that you could manufacture to measure how perfect it is. Because He's the perfect standard that the standards are based upon he he is the standard his judgments are that way it's unsearchable and then the second word here um fathomless are his ways this word was used both for uh, for land and sea so let me start with the land um there's this interesting image behind the word uh, fathomless this is the the net bible new english translation or if you had like a niv bible in front of you um it will say beyond tracing out and it's based on this noun um, ichnos, which means footprint, or, or the verb it means to to find by following a trail, by following and to track somebody down. So imagine in your mind, you know, somebody who's a tracker. So maybe some of you guys remember, you know, like Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett or whatever. I'm just thinking of some guy with a big raccoon hat on. Or maybe if you don't want to go back that far, maybe you just go to like whatever you know today. Like I think of Lord of the Rings and Aragon. He's this king who, who you know was nicknamed Strider, because he was a guy who was out in the wild. He could track anything. And so just think about somebody who, who's just a great tracker, could follow a trail. But see, God's ways are incapable of being tracked down. And and the idea is that we see there's footprints, but we don't understand. We can't make sense of the tracks. That's the idea behind this. Um, Tom Schreiner he gives a great explanation of this. He says this, um, people see the course of history and events as they occur, but the mere observation of these events doesn't translate to an understanding of what God is doing in history. Human beings see the bare events as they transpire, but they don't perceive the saving plan of God that is being accomplished in and through these events. To perceive the meaning of the events in history, we need God's interpretive binoculars that will help us see aright what He is up to. And apart from the revelation of the Holy Spirit, no human being knows what God has prepared for those who love Him. But the Spirit has granted that revelation to believers. And, and Tom Schreiner, he's talking about 1 Corinthians 2.19. But it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. The deep things. And yet, you know what he's trying to say here even when God reveals His steps for us to understand, we still aren't able to fathom the depths of His plans. We're still not able to plan the depths of His ways. And I just think two instances come to mind immediately. The first is um, what happened in, in history a long time ago, the story of Joseph. If you remember the story of Joseph, I love it. It's one of my favorites. And in the beginning, what God does is God gives Joseph dreams. Dreams that um, his family are going to come and they're going to bow down before him. The idea that these sheaves of wheat will bow down before him and he's like a sheaf of wheat. And like, what's this wheat theme? And, and he, But he knows this is his family and they're bowing down before him. We don't really get the wheat thing until later on in the story, right? Um, But we know from the story, if you've read the whole thing, sorry, spoiler, um, God plans to make Joseph second in command in the entire world. Prime Minister. Under Pharaoh. And the reason why is to save Egypt, to save his family, and to provide a place and a way for God to grow the nation of Israel. So this is God's plan. He's, I'm going to make Joseph second in command. So, now let me just ask you, if this was your goal, that you needed to become second in command of the greatest nation in history, how would you go about doing that? Some of you, you would begin by going to college and taking political science classes. Because that's the way to do it. Some of you would read into what the plan was. It was not just to be second in command, but it was also to save um, all of Egypt and the people from from famine and from drought. And so then you would go sort of the environmental way, and like how can I prepare crops and how can we grow crops and and provide the water flow and all of that. And there's all sorts of ways that we think that we might be able to to get up to that point of of the second most powerful man in the world – And yet, God's way is to allow envy to get into Joseph's family so that the brothers sell him as an Egyptian slave. They throw him in a pit. They decide to sell him instead of killing him so they can make a quick buck. And then he goes and he, he works in a house, but there he is falsely accru- accused of rape. And so now he's taken from a slave and he's put into a prison. And he's there in a prison. And while he's there, he is forgotten for a number of years. Until finally one day the Pharaoh has a dream and, and Pharaoh's cupbearer says, oh yeah, I remember there's a guy in the prison. Oh, we should, you should talk to him. And he brings him out. And then all of a sudden... Joseph is not just restored, but he is brought up to be the second in command only under Pharaoh to take care of all things. And, and then his family comes to him because they need grain, they need food, and they all bow before him. And then his family is restored to him, and he's restored to his family, and he sees his father, and they are restored together. But then his father dies. And his brothers begin to fear and say, oh no, now that Dad is gone, Joseph he's going to take it out on us. And Joseph comes to them and he says, listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To save the lives of many people. What was Joseph saying? God's ways are fathomless. They're fathomless. You can't understand them all. What you thought you were doing with one purpose, God was doing for a different reason. And Scripture teaches that God has ordained whatever comes to pass. And this is where we have a little problem. Um, because of that, you know, He's obviously ordained a path for us to walk in. That's you and me. We have a path. God's ordained all things. We have a path, but we have problems. We have trouble with the path. Why do we have trouble with the path? Well, first, we're not always convinced that it's ordained. Not quite sure that God has really ordained this this path here. Secondly, we really don't know where we're going. And so we begin to question. We don't understand. And then thirdly, it doesn't always work out the way that we think it should. Have you ever had times where you're praying and say, "God, I'm not sure that this is the way it's supposed to go," or you think something something that's terrible happening, and you're like, "That's that can't be something that God w- would allow." I just don't understand these things. And see, this is Joseph's struggle. I mean, think about it: sold, um, you know, abused, slavery, dungeon, years go by. That's Joseph's struggle. This is our struggle. This is why our thoughts about God are the most important thing about us. For Joseph and all that he went through, his thoughts about God were the most important thing about him. With all that you are going through today, your thoughts about God are the most important thing about you. Do you trust His ways? Yeah, I know they're unfathomable, but do you trust them? It's not just His ways that you're trusting. You're trusting Him. Do you trust Him? And see, when I struggle with things not working out the way that I think they should, after a while, I force myself to look at Jesus. Because the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the depth of the riches. It's the depth of the knowledge. It's the depth of the wisdom of God. Jesus is the riches. And if I'm getting out of sync and if I don't understand things, I need to look at Jesus. Um, J.I. Packer, he reminds us, he wrote, he says, no human life has ever been so completely guided by God. And none has ever qualified so comprehensively for the description a man of sorrows. Divine guidance set Jesus at a distance from his family and his fellow townsmen. It brought him into conflict with all the nation's leaders and led finally to betrayal and arrest and the cross. And by every human standard, the reckoning, every human standard of reckoning, the cross was a waste. It's a waste of a young life. Waste of a prophet's influence. A waste of a leader's potential. And see, we know the secret of its meaning and of its achievement only from God's own statements. We would never have seen the cross and understood all that lie behind it and underneath it and around it unless God would have shown us. His ways are unfathomable. The waste. The loss, the suffering, that's the focal point of all history. This is God's greatest achievement. He, re- he reveals that to us through Jesus, God is He's weaving our lives into his own story. I'm, I'm still amazed by the statement in acts two where where Peter says, "This man who was handed over by the predetermined and fore, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You executed by nailing Him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. But God raised Him up having released Him from the pains of death because it was not possible for Him to be held in its power. Death couldn't hold Him. The angry mob couldn't take God's path in the way that He didn't want it to go. Somehow God interweaves everything that we're doing in with His own plan. And see, this is where we place our trust. This is why we trust in God Himself. So what it basically says here is God's judgments, they, are, they can't be searched to the bottom. And his paths, his paths can't be followed to the end. And I showed you how the word is used on land. Let me show you how the word is used at sea. I didn't really know this. This whole idea of how fathomless His ways you guys know what a fathom is? I I, I learned this this week. New, new, New terminology, a fathom. Let me show you what a fathom is. A fathom is this length of rope. And you're on a boat, and you're trying to figure out how deep the water is, and so you take your rope and you take one fathom, two fathoms, three fathoms, four fathoms, five fathoms. That's how long my rope is. That's all I got. If it's more than five fathoms, I'm in trouble. Right? It's a stretch of rope about six feet. And this is how you figure out how deep the water was so that your ship wouldn't run aground, um, or or that you knew how deep it was to set your anchor, because if your anchor only had a certain amount of rope. So so today, you know, we use sonar, you use, um, you know, echo sounding to discover how deep the floor of the ocean is. But see, back in the day, they did it by counting fathoms, by sticking a lead weight on the bottom of the rope. And what Paul is saying is there's not enough rope. You don't have enough rope in your mind. There's not enough rope in your brains to fathom the depths of His riches, His knowledge, His wisdom, His judgments, His paths. You don't have enough. And and yet, in this statement, He's challenging us to do something. He's challenging us. He's saying, get out your rope. Give it a try. Go on. See how deep it goes. Go ahead. Get more rope. Get more. You're going to need more. Keep on going. This is what He's doing. Give it a try. See what you find. And see, what you and I should be doing is we should be observing and enjoying the depths of God's riches, of His wisdom, of His knowledge. And see, this is what evokes awe. And worship... Where we see the worth of God. And see, this is what compelled Paul to start composing this doxology. Just this brief hiatus away from teaching theology. Just to say, let's just look at God. Let's just look at Him. And and you know what we learn from this? We don't need to understand everything to praise the God who does. We don't need to understand everything before we can start praising the God who does. Paul continues, and I'm just giving you just a brief summary of this part. Trust me, I could go back for weeks on this. For who has known the mind of the Lord? For who has become his counselor? For who is first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen And Paul's just quoting from Job 41, "Where God is speaking to Job, who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. There's nobody that has something that I didn't first give him. I don't have to repay anybody. John Murray, he wrote this, he said, "God is debtor to none. His favor is never compensation. Merit places no constraints on His mercy. I mean, what you've done, that's not something that is caused to deserve. His mercy. No one can expect a reward for um, for his or her wise counsel for how much they know. And yet God and God alone has determined the course of history and in His own wisdom, we become aware of His plan only to the extent that he reveals it to us, and man, he's revealed to us. I mean, this is a pretty big book, and and you can study portions of it over and over again, and you find out that it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And see, there's so many ways that we can apply these truths, and I just want to focus on just really what Paul is trying to do here in Romans and after giving us all this truth he stops to praise and worship you just got to stop you you got to take time to take it in See, there should be no worship without truth. This is something I think that we teach here fairly regularly. That you should worship what you know is true about God. Who God is. God is truth. But there, there shouldn't be any teaching or study of God's Word. There shouldn't be any truth that you intake without worship as a response. That we should be responding in this way. And see, when we worship, it should always reflect what is true about God. What He has done And when we read or when we listen to the Word of God or we learn about God, we should always reflect. We should always reflect in praise and in worship and in awe. See, this is why you guys know my pet peeve about the word awesome. I mean, hamburgers are just not awesome. That skateboarding trick might have been cool, but was it awesome? See, I think God is awesome. He... He evokes awe from us. You know, um, in seminary, I, um, I crammed a four-year degree into three years. And uh, for a while, I thought that I had done quite an accomplishment. Um, and as I was going through my classes, though, I noticed that there was a part of me that began to kind of grow cold. And it wasn't until later that I figured out what was going on um, information about God is being given to me. Scriptural truth, I'm, I'm learning, it's, it, but it's entering my brain at a faster rate than I'm able to rightly process. And it, it was kind of reduced. Thoughts about God, they were meant to transform my mind, but they were reduced to academic knowledge. Facts. God is never meant to just be a fact. And see, the issue was this. I was kind of like the Dead Sea. Lots of minerals and lots of water flowing into it, but nothing ever flowing out of it. And see, this is how some of us are. We like to learn about God. But when it comes to earnestly worshiping Him and praising Him, we're a bit stoic. We've shut off those emotions. I've got a term for when that happens spiritual constipation. We're stopped up. We learn and we grow not just so we can become better, but so we can worship the One who's making us better. It's not just to improve me. It's to worship the God who's working on me. And you let the truths you hear move your heart to praise, to worship, I didn't warn Ryan about this. Because if I did, we would have another set of music right now, wouldn't we? We would, because we need, to, we, need to, we need to show it. So when you're in your car alone, do you talk to God? Do you just talk back and say, God, I'm learning about You and I'm thinking about You and, and you just talk to Him. I mean, hopefully nobody's in the car with you. If they are, let them hear. Do you sing to God? You should. You should. I don't care if it's in the shower, if it's in the car, if it's when you're walking alone or when you're with somebody, but turn off the stereo. Start talking to Him. Start thinking about what He has done. Let Him change your heart. Let Him move this just spiritual constipation. Start fathoming. Start fathoming the things of God. Letting out the rope. Looking for the bottom. Knowing you're not going to find it. But keep on letting out the rope and say, man, this is a lot of rope. Wow. And you just let it blow your mind. See, do you want God to light you up? There's an old Christian saying, set your heart aflame for the Lord and men will come to watch you burn. That's the church. It's what we're meant to be. People should come to us and see... What is it that you are so lit up about? And all you can say is, I've just been fathoming the person of God. Let me give you a couple things if this is new to you. If you want some help fathoming the Word of God, a couple books that are just fabulous, and they're not meant to be just read. You have to read and stop and close the pages and express Read the book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Read the book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. These guys just took some time and said, Who is God? Let's worship Him. Let me pray. Ryan, is there a song that would just express this time? That sounds great. How about instead of just praying, let's sing. You're going to have to follow me. You want a mic? turn our eyes to you. Your riches are unfathomable. Your ways are untraceable. And yet you've chosen to reveal yourself to us, what you're doing in history, and even what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for what you have done. We just want to worship you. We pray that You would change us not just so that we would become better but so we would be able to turn to You in awe and delight in the greatness of who You are. We thank You for revealing Your plan of Jesus Christ to all humanity and I pray You would help us to take that great news throughout the world both in our homes in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and wherever else we go. We love you. We thank you for your greatness. I pray, Lord, you would change us as we move out today. Let us be the kind of church that you will use greatly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming, Grace Point. Let's go out and think great thoughts of God. You're dismissed.